Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Today I'm starting a little two-part series called The Unseen War. I bet war is on everybody's mind, right? I mean, it's hard not to have war in your mind. We see what's going on around the world. Actually, if you think about it, we've been in a war for a couple of years against COVID, and now this war in Europe that's kind of caught everybody off guard, and we kind of see what's going on in Europe, and we're surprised. It's been 70 years since there's been a major conflict in Europe, and it's thrown us off a little bit, and I think what we've done is we've been a bit naive, and we've made this assumption that the world has somehow become a more enlightened, kinder, and gentler place. Not so. Uh, Jesus told us this. He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not let your heart be troubled. And why would he say that? Because mankind is still fallen. Mankind is still sinful. There are evil people in the world. And why we think we're more enlightened and kinder and gentler is beyond me. The world has been in conflict from the very beginning of time. And what I'm going to talk about today is about the war behind the war. And how many of you, I bet there's enough people in this room that will remember this from the late 1980s. There was a book called This Present Darkness. How many of you remember that book? Written by Frank Peretti. A bunch of you have read it probably. And uh, here's the book. He wrote that, Piercing the Darkness and the Oath. And and, uh, everybody was reading it. I mean, it became a bestseller uh, for three years. It was on the bestsellers list. Sold 2.5 million copies. And this is my personal opinion. I didn't think it was a well-written book at all. The grammar was terrible. The dialogue was cheesy. Uh, the characters were, you know, one-dimensional and stereotypical. But I'll tell you what he did do a great job in was uh, juxtaposing the spiritual world and the natural world. And he pre- prepared and presented this dual of this town where there was conflict within the town and then it would jump back and forth between the natural world and the spiritual world and we saw the conflict happening in the spiritual world. And I think what it did for a lot of people was I think it opened their eyes to the spiritual reality that a lot of us forget exists. And what we... What I'm going to try to encourage you today is to remember that there is an unseen war. There is a spiritual battle that has been raging behind the scenes for literally thousands of years. And so what I'm going to do is give you a little crash course in angelology because obviously in the spiritual realm you have the conflict between demons and angels. We don't see it. You look into scripture though and it's very clear. It's not hard to develop a doctrine of angels if you take a few minutes to do it. I'm going to give you a real snapshot of it here. The first thing is this. We know that angels are an order of beings that pre-exist man that they were created before us. They may actually be superior to us in in the form of creation. They're highly intelligent. They're incredibly powerful. They're far more mobile than we are. They can be anywhere they want. And no, they don't need wings. In fact, I don't think they have wings, uh, except for maybe the cherubim. And if you've been watching John Travolta on the movie Michael, you may have missed, here's a picture of this. I think you may have misunderstood what the angel is. I know we have that picture somewhere. There it is. Some of you remember this movie. Uh, You watch that movie, you'll still know nothing about angels. Let me tell you that. Uh, He was the smoking, drinking, cussing angel, and uh, he was supposed to be Michael the archangel. The only thing they maybe got right is that Michael actually is an archangel. There's only three angels named in scripture. This might surprise you. Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. 
And it's my contention, I believe if you do some research on this, you come to the conclusion that Lucifer might have been the third archangel. And the reason for that is if you go into Revelation chapter 12, you find this story that's not in the future, it's actually in the past. And this is what the writer says. He says, and war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against Lucifer and his angels. And you can do a little cross-referencing. You go into Isaiah 14, you go into Ezekiel 28, and you discover what happened. You have Lucifer, this high, uh, high angel who's very beautiful and very extraordinary. And one day he decides he's going to exalt his throne above the throne of God. Like literally one day he said about God, I think I can take him. I mean, how bizarre is that? The creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who existed always before all time, and yet Lucifer thought he could take him. So then he takes what we know is one third of the angels, and he fights against uh, Lucifer, or sorry, fights against Michael, and it says that Michael cast him down to the earth. And his tail drew a third of the stars. So what happened with those angels that followed Lucifer? He became Satan and those angels became demons. But here's the part you don't ever want to forget. Yes, there are demons running amok on planet Earth. But we don't want to forget that there are also angels here as well. Even though Satan and his demons are now bound from heaven, they can't go and to heaven. The angels of God can somehow move between heaven and earth. And here's what I want you to remember that's really important. Yes, a third of the angels are demons, but two-thirds of the angels are on our side. So does any, is anyone good at math? Does anyone know what the numbers are in that? And someone tell me, who's, who's going to win this battle? What's the percent? Who can tell me? It, it, yeah, it's, it's two to one. So somebody really good at math out there, you, you figured this out right away. Two-thirds versus one-third. So we're on the winning side, so we don't have to worry about the fact as to who's going to win this battle. We know who's going to win this battle. But the more important thing for us to understand is that we're still in the battle. So here's what we want to do. We want to uh, jump into the verse or into the scripture for today. And it's uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It's a very familiar, very famous passage that talks all about this. And we're going to kind of try to, try to take it and try to unfold it and see, make some real sense for us. So verse 10 says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse. First of all, it tells us who our enemy is. It also tells us who our enemy isn't, which is really important. And then it actually tells us how we fight him, that we have this armor. And so I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to deal with it today. And uh, the very next verses go and delineates the, the Roman armor and uses it as a spiritual weapon, uses it as a metaphor, and talks about the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and, you know, the sword of the spirit. And we've been through that before, so I'm not going to do it today. I did a whole message on it. If you want to go look it up online, it was in Lessons of, from Lockdown, uh, Lesson 4. It was called The Armor is Awesome. How many of you remember that message? I dressed Pastor Steve up. In Roman armor. Do you remember this? I got a picture of it. Show that picture for that message. He dressed up, brought out the devil. I was having so much fun because I kept on hitting Pastor Steve with a stick. Do you remember that? 
That was like the most fun part of that. So, but, so anyway, I've already done that. So you can go look that up, research that on your own if you're curious about that. But here's what I want to point out, because I think we think that sometimes when these writers are using a metaphor, you know, they'll, they'll mix their metaphors. They'll jump from this thing to that thing. And Paul never did that. If he was talking about something, if he was using the metaphor of Roman armor as to how we fight our spiritual battle, which he did, then when he talks about the enemy, he's using the same metaphor. And I'm going to show it to you. This principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, he is actually doing a metaphor to the Roman hierarchy. So I'm going to show it to you. This is a beautifully constructed thing that I did myself last night on my computer. Man, that's bad. But, but anyway, it will give you the picture. So at the very, very top, we have uh, Satan. But I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll take it and go through the Roman hierarchy first, and then I'll go through the spiritual hierarchy that he is comparing it to, the parallelism there. So the first thing we know that in the Roman Empire, the Caesar, uh, he was the head, he was the emperor of the empire. And then underneath him, see, he was in Rome. He couldn't rule over the whole realm. I mean, if you ever go look at a map, you see how extensive the Roman Empire was. And so he had delegates at various levels. Like, like any level of government, you've got different layers and different tiers in the hierarchy. And so then there was principalities, princes over areas. And in Judah, it was King Herod. He was his delegate. He was his representative in, in that place. And then there was powers, which is actually probably better translated authorities, and they had these various authorities, and we know one of them was actually Pontius Pilate, another character we find in Scripture, and he was the governor in Jerusalem. And then there was the rulers that were the military rulers. Today we would call them generals. In those days they called them the, the, the Roman legat or legatus in Latin. And uh, they were the generals that ruled over these armies. And then, of course, have the Roman legions, the armies, which are the spiritual hosts, that word hosts, is an old-term word for armies. And so those were the run-of-the-mill demons. So I want to just take a few moments to talk about this. We know at the very, very top of this pyramid, the uh, you know, parallel to Caesar is actually Satan. Now here's the good news. You are not likely to ever encounter Satan personally. Do you know why? You're not that important. That's why. I mean, Jesus did. Jesus was important. He was the, the son of God. So he had several encounters with, with Satan himself. You can see those in scripture. You're not going to any more than you would encounter Caesar if you lived in the Roman Empire. He is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at a time. You're never going to meet him because he's living in the Kremlin at the moment. You all get that. And I'm not joking about that. And so, so that's, that's where Satan is. And then he's got these delegates. And the first one, of course, is the principalities. And what do you discover as you dig into this a little bit deeper? That in the spiritual realm, just as in the natural realm, every country has a rulership of some sort. A prince, a monarch, or a president, or a prime minister, or whatever. And it's also true in the spiritual world. And we learn that from Daniel chapter 10. So Daniel... 10, we have Daniel, he's praying, he's asking God for something. It's 21 days before he gets his answer. When he does get his answer, the angel of the Lord appears to him and he said, I came from the first day you asked, but I was withheld this 21 days by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, do you think that he was being withheld, an angel was being withheld from the literal prince of Persia? 
No, he's talking about the principality. He is talking about the spiritual ruler over Persia, which is today Iran and Iraq. And, and he's saying that power, that principality, was the thing that withheld me. And here's what you'll discover if you travel the world. And I, I talk to lots of people who've traveled the world. They've experienced this. When you go into various countries, you actually encounter, and as a Christian, you can often feel the spiritual atmosphere in that country. If you go into the Middle East, for example, where the, 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 you know, the prince of the kingdom of Persia lives, you find the spirit of military conflict. You go to any of those countries, they're always at war. You feel it when you travel in them. Even during peacetime, it sort of hangs over it. If you go into South Asia or Southeast Asia, you will discover and feel the presence of the spirit of idolatry. India alone has 350 million gods. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, be insulting here. It's just the truth. It's just part of the religion. And you can't go into that country without feeling it. And same with Southeast Asia and the idols everywhere. You go over into Eastern Europe and you feel the power of political oppression. Even in some of the countries that have been liberated, it still hangs over them like a pall. I've traveled in Eastern Europe. I know what I'm talking about. So I remember a number of years ago, I'll tell you this little story. We were in Argentina, and we were in the city of Buenos Aires, and we traveled across the river, the Rio de la Plata, to Montevideo, Uruguay, next country over. And uh, Argentina is very much uh, influenced by the Catholicism, Spanish Catholicism. And so we left there, we went by ferry, we went across, we arrived in Montevideo Video, Montevideo video, Montevideo, it's not a video, it's a real place, uh, Uruguay, and we arrived there, and we went through customs, and, and it's a whole different country. It is characterized by Marxism for many years, and then with military coup, and its background is much different than Argentina. And when we went through customs, the border guard passed us through, and my friend Ron McLean from Gateway, he said to the guard, God bless you. And the man said, no, 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 no. In Argentina, you say, God bless you. In Uruguay, you say, good luck. <laughs> and I mean, we kind of chuckled, but we thought that sort, of, that sort of illustrates everything we're talking about here. So every country, including our own, they all have these principalities, these ruling spirits in the unseen realm. And then you look into cities. We had Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem. And you look at our city and any other city around the world, and they all have a personality. They all have a spiritual characteristic. I could n name a dozen cities and tell you which one, but I'll just tell you one tiny story. We were in New York City. How many have been to Manhattan? It's an incredible place to visit, but there is a spirit there. You can feel the spirit of greed and money and all of that, and that's where Wall Street is, and that's where the financial bankers are. And we were on a bus tour, and we were going through the streets of Manhattan, and the tour guide was at the front of the bus, and he was talking to us and telling us about all these different sites, you know, Ground Zero, 9-11, and all that. And then this is one of the things he said as we went by Wall, by Wall Street. He said this. He said, don't think for a minute that the Dutch founded this city seeking religious freedom. They came here to make money. And I thought, that's absolutely right. He, this this tour operator understood the spirit of his city. And then the other thing you find is within each city, you find rulers of darkness. And even in our own city, you can go to areas of our city that are, are, are criminal areas. You can go to other cities or parts of our city where it's prostitution and other areas where there's the drugs. And there's probably parts of this city 
that some of you won't even go to. Is that right? How many of you have a part of the city you don't like to go to? Like tuxedo, places like that, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I'm just poking, poking fun. But, but then you have the spiritual hosts of wickedness. And you know what these are? These are the run-of-the-mill demons. These are the demons that are running amok. They're everywhere. We know that there's probably tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of them, because we know the scripture says there's a myriad of myriads of angels. So the number has got to be extraordinary, and the number of demons has got to be extraordinary. We've all encountered a demon in our life. Some of you are encountering one right now. <laughs> I'm kidding, but, but the fact is we've all understood this. And the bigger question is, how do we do battle? How do we wrestle against the powers of darkness? So what I want to do, I want to take a couple of minutes and I want to build my own metaphor. Paul used his, I'm going to use a different one today. And I want to talk about the war in Ukraine. And the reason is it's all on our minds. We're all thinking about it. I want to talk about that war and I want to talk about the war behind the war. And when we think about uh, Ukraine, there's a picture that emerges from me that I want to paint for you. So first of all, I want to show you the USSR before 1991, before the Iron Curtain fell. You had Russia there and all of those countries around it, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, you know, Latvia, all those places were under the rule of the USSR. And then right smack in the middle there is Ukraine. And then if we go back forward after 1991, if we go to the modern day map, here's what Europe looks like today. And all of those blue countries are now NATO countries. They have all aligned with the West and they said, we want to be part of the West and the West defense system. And then you have Russia, the great bear on the East. And look who's still in the middle there. It's Ukraine. And you know, for better or for worse, and I'm not trying to trivialize at all what's going on in Ukraine, don't misunderstand me in this, even though I'm using it as a parallel, we understand the atrocities. We understand the horrors of war and the mistreatment and the devastation of that country, and our heart goes out to them. But it is a good picture of something, and, that's, and it's this, is, is how we relate to the forces on either side of us. So just give you a real snapshot of, of Ukraine for a moment. Uh, the Ukrainian people have been around for at least 1,200 years. I mean, there's always someone lived there, but as a, as a culture and as an ethnicity, probably 1,200 years. And during that 1,200 years, they never really got fully self-determined. They never really governed themselves. They were always stuck in the middle and being pulled from the east to the west. And you had Russia coming at them from one side and you had the, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire on the other and they were always tugging and pulling and going from one uh, country to another like this. And then in 1793, what happened was Catherine the Great actually captured Ukraine for Russia and it spent 200 years under Russian rule. And then in 1991, that Iron Curtain came down, and for the first time in their history, they became an independent democracy. So they're only 30 years old as a democracy. It is one of the reasons, it's not my reason, but it's the reason why they're not in NATO, is the NATO countries are saying, we're not sure that this is a stable enough democracy for us yet, and that's why they haven't been included in membership in NATO yet. Maybe someday they will, but that's where they're at. They're still finding their way. Their history is way more complicated than I've just painted for you. Uh, it's sort of interesting to me that the name Ukraine means borderlands, and that's why for many, many years they were called the Ukraine, the borderlands, like we have Holland called the Netherlands. 
And in 1991, they started to ask and require people to call them Ukraine because they were a, their own country, a sovereign country, a democracy, and they were no longer you know, belonging to someone else. They weren't a province of someone else. They were their own self-determined sovereign nation, and so they wanted that to be reflected in their name, which I think is a good thing. And here's the picture I want to paint for you for a moment. If we can put that up, that last picture up just for a moment. I want you to imagine yourself on planet Earth as a little bit like Ukraine. And so that way I think it will help us empathize and sympathize with their situation. And we have these two powers on either side of us. And we have Russia, which for my metaphor, and I'm not saying this literally, but for my metaphor is the kingdom of darkness. And on the other side, we have the NATO countries, which I'm calling the kingdom of heaven in this case. Now understand, NATO is far from perfect. It's just a metaphor, got it? But what they are is they are stuck in between. They are in the dynamic tension between East and West, NATO and Russia. And the same thing is true with us. On planet Earth, we have been stuck between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. And we are in this dynamic tension. We are in this spiritual conflict and we find ourselves trapped and caught in this. And our story isn't a whole lot different because think about this. Some 6,000 years ago or whenever it was, Adam and Eve in the garden, they made the tragic mistake of believing and accepting Satan. And when he tempted them and they fell, the whole world... Think about this, came under the rule of the kingdom of darkness. The Bible literally calls him the prince of the power of the air. Jesus himself calls Satan the god of this world because he was here. He was cast down from heaven and the earth became under the rule of Satan. But then everything changed on the cross. When Jesus hung on that cross, he defeated the enemy. Now, I want you to think about this because he did not banish the devil from the planet Earth. How many of you, if you were God, you would have drop-kicked him right off the planet? How many would have done that? Well, you're not God. Sorry about that. And that is, that is not what he did. And here's what the scripture says. It says, and he has disarmed principalities and powers. Did you catch that? He's disarmed them. They're still here, but they're disarmed. When the scripture says, your adversary goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If the enemy is devouring you, he's gumming you to death because he's had his teeth pulled, right? (laughs) Are you following this? And so we're in this battle where we are trying to deal with the fact that we are in a dynamic tension between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of of Satan. How many many of you are following me so far? And so that's why our weapons are so important. We have to fight our battle. We have to duke it out. So here's my four points that I'm only going to get through half of them today. And next time, it'll be the other half. So the first one is this. Don't forget who your real enemy is. Number two, don't underestimate your adversary. Number three, don't make any deals with the devil. You're going to like that one. Number four, don't expect God to fight your battles for you. So the first one is this. Don't forget who your real enemy is. Do you notice how Paul starts our little discourse here? He says this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Let me tell you something, that is not an observation. You know how I know that? I see people fighting against flesh and blood all day long. That is instructional. He is saying, don't fight against your brothers. We don't, I don't want you to wrestle against flesh and blood. 
but we're so terrible at this. We really are. We see our boss as our enemy, our spouse as our enemy, our neighbor as our enemy, our government as our enemy. And what we have done is we've fallen into Satan's trap. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. What we have done is we've forgotten who our real enemy was. I want you to look at Jesus for a moment. So you find Jesus on planet Earth. Have you noticed that he never once treated another human being as his enemy? Have you ever thought about that? You won't actually find a single circumstance of that. You'll find he never treated the Romans like they were his enemies. He never actually treated the, you know, the, the Jewish high priests like they were his enemies. He never treated the tax collectors like his enemies. He never treated the sinners like his enemies. He didn't even treat Judas, who betrayed him, as his enemy. You remember? He knew who was going to betray him. He knew all along who was going to betray him. But he always treated him with the utmost care and love. Because he knew that Judas wasn't his true, real enemy. And so what we do is we make the mistake of falling into that trap, into thinking that people are our enemy when they're not. So we look at Jesus. I want to tell you this little story about something he did. So it's, it's Luke chapter 11. There was a man brought to him. The man was mute. He could not speak. And they wanted him to be healed. And Jesus did heal him, but how he healed him was sort of fascinating because he didn't lay hands on him and say, be healed. He cast the mute spirit out of him. He cast a demon out of the mute man. And 25% of Jesus' healings were not actually healings at all where they were deliverances. You can go read through the narrative and you discover he was time and time again casting spirits out. And when we read it with our 21st century mindset, maybe not you, but many people, this is the conclusion they come to. They go, well, you know, 2,000 years ago, people were very unsophisticated, and they didn't understand mental illness, or they didn't understand chemical imbalance, or they didn't understand medical science. And that's nice. I get that. But here's my point. If Jesus thought it was a demon, it was a demon. How many of you think that was probably right? How many of you are going with me on this one? If Jesus said it's a demon, it's a demon. And you can have all kinds of other sophisticated explanations for what it was. He cast the thing out, and the man was instantly healed. So we know that it was a demonic presence. And so here's what's interesting to me. Nobody challenged that fact that it was a demon. The people didn't say, that's not a demon. That's a chemical imbalance. Uh, Nobody said that. They all knew it was a demon. They all agreed with that. Even the Pharisees agreed with that. In fact, the Pharisees went a little further. Do you remember this? They said, oh, by the way, you're just doing this. You're casting out Satan by the powers of Beelzebub. Well, Beelzebub was the Philistine word for Lord of the Flies, which was their word for Satan. And so he was saying to them, you're casting out Satan by Satan. And Jesus said, no. If I'm casting out Satan by Satan, then Satan is divided against itself. And any kingdom divided against itself will fall. Let me tell you something. The kingdom of Satan is not divided. They've got it figured out. They have a hierarchy, and they're all in rank and file, and they're going in order, and you can go read the scripture, and they don't actually break ranks in the spiritual world. We're the ones who break ranks. And here's what the devil's done to us. He has tricked us. And someone once said this, and you've heard it, the greatest trick that the devil has ever played on us was convincing us that he doesn't exist. Because if he can convince us that he doesn't exist, then what happens? Then he's not our enemy. We make one another enemy. And we fight one another instead of him. Or as I I like actually the way Conan O'Brien put it. How many of you like Conan O'Brien, the late night guy? Here's what he he tweeted. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The worst trick he pulled was that got your nose thing. (laughs) 
I thought, what are you talking about? I love that trick. You know, when you, I do it with my grandkids all the time. I got your nose. I got your nose. That's not my nose. Yes, that's not my thumb. That's your nose. I got your nose. That's a great trick. I don't know why he thinks that's a crummy trick. I might be slightly off topic here, but just a little bit. But this is really important to us because what Satan has done is convinced us that he doesn't really exist or he's not the one at, at play there. And so what he consequently does is he gets us to fight one another. And the only way that Satan can actually ultimately ever defeat us is when we fight one another. And when I look back at the two years of the pandemic, I can't think of another time in my entire life there was more divisive and more people were fighting each other and families and friends and churches and businesses and neighbors. Everybody was divided. Everybody was fighting about everything. They were fighting about politics. They were fighting about the vaccine. They were fighting about everything. And you all know what I'm talking about. And I've been doing this gig as a pastor for almost 40 years. And I will tell you something. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going. I think I experienced and faced more criticism in two years than the entire time of 40 years of ministry before that. How can that be? Because we all got so incredibly combative, contentious, and cranky. And there's just no other way to put it. Every single day, every single week, I got reams of emails and phone calls, and everybody was mad at me for something. Here's the, here's the good news. I got really thick skin. I'm not saying I like it, but I got really thick skin. And so, you know, I just kind of rolled with it. But I was getting sick of it. And I couldn't believe the things that people were criticizing me for. I'll give you just one example. You want one example? I'll give you one example. So I did this message. You all remember. It was on not being offended. It was all about avoiding offense and forgiving everybody all the time. Has anybody ever heard me say that? Forgive everybody all the time. Do not be offended because offense is a trap. This woman writes me an email and she is offended... <laughs> you following this so far? She's offended with me because I used the word crotch in a sermon. In fact, she went a little further. She said, not only did you use the word crotch, you used the word crotch behind the sacred pulpit. You know, if I'm standing behind this pulpit, it's probably not a very sacred place. First of all, let's start there. But nobody ever told me that there's something wrong with the word crotch. I'm not allowed to say the word crotch. is somehow crotch out of our vocabulary. We're not allowed to use the word crotch in our lexicon. It's not like I use crotch in every single sentence. It's not like crotch is the only thing that I ever say. What is wrong with the word crotch, people? I need to know. And had I known, I shouldn't have been saying the word crotch. Probably wouldn't have made any difference. So, but here's what I, here's what I decided. About, about a year ago, I thought, what am I going to do with this? I mean, every single day, somebody's mad at me about something. What am I going to do? And I thought, I'm going to try a strategy I've never tried before. And I'm going to tell you about it. I, I tried to do something that I'd never, ever done before. It, it, what the, oh, I lost it here. It starts with an H. Oh, oh, I got it. Humility. That's what, that's what I, I thought. I'm going, to try, I'm going to try humility. You say, why would you try humility? See, here's what we don't know. Or a lot of people don't know. That humility is actually a spiritual weapon. You say, what are you talking about? The scripture says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the very next verse says, resist the devil and he will flee. So you see, when we humble ourselves, there's this incredible power to defuse and defeat the enemy when we humble ourselves. So I just decided, instead of being contentious with these people, and that's what I would like to do, when people criticize you, what do you want to do? Back. Criticize them back. That would be our 
human natural response to that. But I realized that wasn't the right way for me to respond, so I decided I was going to try this new thing called humility. And so I'll just give you one little example of this. So I had a pastor friend. He was in a meeting. He got so mad at me for something. I said something. I didn't use the word crotch, but I said something. And, and, and he was so mad at me about this. And I thought, how am I going to get past this? I've been with this guy's friend for years, and this is not worth it. Being divided over this thing is not worth it. So I phoned him up. We started talking it through, and I said, look, maybe you're right. He said, what do you mean maybe I'm right? I said, no, maybe you're right, and I was wrong. He said, what? <laughs> you think I was right and you were wrong? I said, maybe. I know, you notice the maybe part? Like, I wasn't, I wasn't sure whether he was right or wrong. I thought he could be right. But here was what's more important. I don't want you to miss this. Does it really matter who's right? I mean, what's more important? Your relationship with another human being, someone who's been your friend for a long time, that is not your enemy, never was your enemy, shouldn't be your enemy? Is that more important or is being right more important? And see, what happened is we got caught up in our own self-righteousness and our own opinions. See, I always told people during the pandemic, I said, you know what, you're free to hold whatever opinion you want. Take a strong opinion. Take a strong stand. Do the research. Come to your own conclusions. You have the right. It's okay to have a strong opinion on things. But it's not okay to use that as a wedge between you and the friends and the people you love. Are you with me on this? And I thought to myself, that is not worth it to lose my friend over this insignificant thing. I don't care who is right. You know what Jesus said? He said, agree quickly with your adversary while you were on the way with him. He's not talking about your spiritual adversary. He's talking about your human adversary. And one of the most powerful things you can do to defuse, defuse somebody is agree with them. They hate that. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean I'm right? <laughs> it was the funniest thing you ever seen. What do you mean I'm right? The other thing I learned over this course of the time, and I won't spend too much time on it, but is this other word. It starts with an A. How does that one go again? Oh, apologize. Apologize. I was doing more apologizing in the last couple of years than any time in my whole life. Anybody else doing that lately? Anybody else? Like three of you? You know, the rest of you should try it. It, it, it actually works. So the first thing is this. Don't forget who your real enemy is. And, and the second thing, and I'll land with this, is this. Don't underestimate your adversary. Don't ever underestimate. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Any of that sound good? It's not very good. I mean, that's a terrible thing. That's what he comes to do. Steal, to kill, to destroy. And we underestimate how vicious and vile he is. But the rest of the verse goes on and says, but I have come, then you have life and have life more abundantly. And when you look at what's happening in Ukraine right at the moment, it's shocking to me how cruel and ruthless Putin is. But if we remember what the enemy is like. See, I think people, I think what the world did was they underestimated Putin. I mean, the fact that he's bombing schools and hospitals and daycare centers and children and women and ravaging this country unprovoked, it's unbelievable. We're standing back incredulously. We can't believe it. And here's the problem. We underestimated him because here's what he did. Here's what he did. He actually encircled the country with all his tanks and armaments, and then kept on saying to the world, oh, I'm not invading Ukraine. You remember this. It went on for weeks. I'm not invading Ukraine. And then he invaded Ukraine, and everybody went, oh, he said he wasn't going to invade Ukraine. You know what we did? We underestimated the devil. 
and we underestimated Putin. Of course he was going to invade. See, here's the thing about Satan. Satan is a liar and the father of lies. That's what scripture says. He's always going to lie to you, but he's subtle with how he lies. Do you remember when he came to Adam and Eve? I want you to think about this story. So they were told, don't eat of the fruit in the midst of the garden. And uh, so Satan comes and asks them and says, you're not supposed to eat in the, the fruit in the midst of the garden. Eve says, well, we're not even allowed to touch it or we'll die. And Satan says, in the form of a serpent, he says to them, you shall not surely die, but you shall be like God, knowing both good and evil. Was any part of that statement true? Was any part of that statement true? Which part? The second part of the statement was true. They would be like God, knowing both good and evil. So what he did was he told them enough truth to get them to believe the lie that he's always telling them. That's how Satan works. That's what Putin did. Always tell enough truth to get them to believe the lie that he's telling them. That's what Satan does, and he does it with us all the time. So I'll just tell you one sort of really super goofy story about this, but it'll make my point. So, so one Sunday morning, I'm making my way down this, this aisle here to come up to the front here before the service, and this woman jumps out in front of me, and she says, Pastor Mark, i got a bone to pick with you. And I said, oh. And she says, why do you hate me so much? And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't even know you, let alone hate you. <laughs> I didn't, I, I'd recognize her. I honestly didn't know who she was. I certainly didn't hate her. And she says, but I'm not going to tell her that. Oh, I don't even know you. Don't worry about it. I can't hate you if I don't know you. No. So I said, oh, well, why, why do you think I hate you? Because she says, every week you walk right by me and you never stop and say hello. Sometimes I've made eye contact with you and you still haven't said no or said hello. Why do you hate me so and you know, I don't know if you know this, on Sunday morning, I do have other things on my mind. I, I, I hate to break to you, I'm not actually thinking about you. I got this message thing rattling around in my head. Do you think this stuff just happens by itself? Do you think I just stand up here and it just comes out of my mouth? Right? <laughs> you know, I know it surprises you. I actually prepare for this, and I jam all that junk in my head. And anyway, so I'm just focused. I walked by her, and I never really noticed her there. But here's, here's the, the point, it's true. I hadn't stopped and said hello to her. That part's true. But she jumped and made the assumption that it was because I hated her. And see, that's how the devil plays with our minds. That's how he tricks us. He puts these thoughts into our heads. And you see, what do you, you say, well, what am I going to do about that? Well, here's when we talk about spiritual weapon. What was the very first thing that Paul said? He said, having your loins girt about with truth. And this is what Jesus said. He said, if you are my disciples, you shall abide in the word. My word shall abide in you. And then you shall know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. What was he saying? He was saying truth will actually protect you from the lies of the enemy. And you say, how can abiding in God's word, how can abiding in the Bible possibly protect me from the lies of the enemy? I don't know exactly how it will affect every single thing in your life. But I'm telling you, it works. When you know who you are in Christ, when you know who he is and how he's made you and how he's wired, those kind of lies don't penetrate because the truth shall set you free. So yes, we are in a spiritual battle. But here's the good news, people. Two-thirds of the angels are on our side, only one-third against us. And I've read the end of the book, people, and we win. We are on the winning side. He has given us authority over all the power of the enemy. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And if God be for you, 
Who can be against? Let's stand together, shall we? All right, you can all bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. We never finish a service without giving people an opportunity to invite Christ into their life. That's the greatest spiritual weapon you will ever have. Let me tell you something. If you don't know Christ, you are fair game. He is going to beat the tar out of you. But once you come to Christ and once you begin to abide in his word, things begin to change in your life. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would like to make that decision to be a follower of Jesus, I'm not asking you, have you been to church? You're in church right now. I'm asking you, have you made a decision to be a follower of Jesus? Do you know if you were to die today or tonight or tomorrow? If you'd go to heaven, that's the question. And if you don't have that assurity, with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you'd like to make that decision, I want you to just raise your hand right now. Just take a moment. Let me see that hand. If you need, thank you at the very back there in the corner. Anybody else want to join these folks? Thank you. Any, anybody else want to say yes today? Won't single you out. Not calling you forward. All right, great, fantastic. You can all put your hands down. Let's all pray together. Every last one of us, but especially those who raised their hands. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That in that moment, you defeated the enemy. And you disarmed him. And you defeated the sin in my life. And you washed it all away. And on the third day, you rose again. And you forever live to be my Lord. And give me life and life abundantly. And that you have equipped me and armed me to do battle against the enemy. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that I will defeat him because I'm on the winning side. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app. 